You can go ahead and be seated for a bit. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at various aspects of the church, what it is, what it does, what we who make up the church are doing when we come together as the church, what we should be doing, what we should be focusing on. Those are things that have come to mind here and we've spent a little time on as we are getting ready to start into a a new book that we'll be in for a length of time. We've been taking this time to look at those topics and they're very important things, very important for us both as individual Christians and very important to us as the church to know uh, what the church is. It's good to be reminded of that. Uh, Paul wrote a whole letter to Timothy with that sort of in mind in 1 Timothy 3.15, he said, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And it's important for us to have a good idea. Sometimes we fall into the, the, the trap, really, of thinking that church is just the thing that we do on Sunday morning, uh, or even worse, the place that we go on Sunday morning. But it's important and helpful for us, or any church, um, occasionally to, to remind ourselves what it is, why it exists, um, what is important to it. And that's what we've been doing over the past few weeks, coming at this from, from various angles. Some churches have what they call vision statements, Some are very long, some are very short, where they sort of set down in writing what they are all about as a congregation, Um, what they they want to be about. Now, we don't have here a formal written vision statement, but we do find a, a vision, at least a vision of your pastor and your elders for this congregation. And it's found in the passage that we're going to be looking at over the next two or three weeks. And it's in the book of Ephesians in chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And of course, we're not alone in sort of seeing that as as a vision statement uh, for the church. Many churches rightly point to these verses as foundational and directional to the ministry of the church. Some, it must be admitted, go to those verses, but then sort of go off track uh, in regard to what the verses are really talking about. Some of them go way off track. For example, there's a, a doctrine of the five-fold ministry which is an increasingly popular teaching within some charismatic churches, which, which see these verses here, as, particularly verse 11, as, as supporting a form of church government and church ministry built, they say, around present-day offices of apostles and prophets. And obviously that is a, a gross example of reading into the text something that the text doesn't say. 
And it doesn't take into account what the rest of the New Testament has to say about the church and the offices of the church and the ministries of the church. But these verses are going to be our guide as we look into the ministry of the church over the next, like I said, two or three weeks. So let's read it. And let me have you stand as we read God's word together. We'll read verses 11 through 16, and those are going to be the verses that we're going to be uh, focusing on during this uh, short, like I said, couple of, couple of weeks or so. So this is God's word. Let us remember that this is God speaking to us, and let us give the proper reverence and, and attention to this word as it is read. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit who illumines our hearts with this word. And we pray, Father, that you would would help us to understand. We pray that you would bless the one who preaches and we who hear. And may you truly teach us through this time this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as we look at these verses over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about the work of the church, particularly, we've called it the work of ministry. Now the key to that uh, in these verses is really in verse 12. Uh, In verse 11, we have God's provision for for the work of ministry. In verse 12, we have a statement of the division of the work of ministry. And then in verses 13 and 16, after that, we have the vision of the work of ministry. What is the purpose of each of us as we are gathered together to to live church life? What is is the purpose of, of my gifts as your pastor? And what are the purposes of your gifts as the members of this congregation? Why does God give men gifts, and then, as we're particularly going to see here, give particular men particular gifts, and then give those men as gifts to the church? God tells us here that my job and the elders' jobs Our two, and this is from verse 12, which I say is the key to this, our job is to equip the saints. Your job 
is then having been equipped or being equipped, your job is to do the work of ministry, the work of service. And the result of all of us doing what God calls us to do in this way, here in these verses he says, is the building up of the body of Christ. That's the goal. That, that it, the body of Christ, the church, that it will be perfected and matured, built up, strengthened, sanctified, and empowered. That it will grow, that is that we will grow, in Christ. We will grow in Christ-likeness. That's the purpose. And this maturity, this fullness, which God brings about through everyone as... Paul wrote here, faithfully exercising their gifts, that maturity includes our our unity in the faith, it includes our knowledge of Christ, it includes our behavior, it includes our doctrine, it includes our discernment, and it includes love. Or, to summarize all of that, as Paul does there in verse 15, it is that we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. That is God's will for us. That is God's will for the church. Again, we mention from time to time that there are so many people in so many ways looking for the will of God. What is God's will for me? And so often and so tragically, they look in all of these weird directions and look for And look to be told what God's will is through all of these strange means. Instead of looking to God's word that he has given to us that reveals to us his will. And for us in the church, in the context of what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians, God's will for the church is that you be matured. That you all, that we all, grow up in our faith. That was also Paul's will for the church. And, just so you know, for what it's worth, that is my will for this congregation. That is the will of the elders of this congregation. Is is not to see every pew filled, though we'd love to see that, but it's to see that the seats that are full are full of maturing Christians. Now, because of our sinfulness, because of our self-centeredness as Christians, because of our rebellion that's still in there, this is a pretty tall order. And our all-wise, sovereign, holy God uses a variety of different means to work that out to bring us to that point now actually we can boil it all down to just one and that's the Holy Spirit just the Spirit because you can't mature any other way you can't mature apart from the work of the Holy Spirit there are two options there's the Spirit and the flesh either you do it or God does it Either the credit for your being perfected and matured in the Christian faith goes to you 
or it goes to God. And remember what God said. He said, I will not share my glory with another. So he has ordained it. He has willed that it is done not through you, but through the Spirit. Let me take that a step further. If you think you can do it yourself, by yourself, now, of course, we know from Philippians that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but even when we consider that, we know that we are to do that because what? It is God who is at work in us. And if you think that you can do it all by yourself through any means that you might muster up apart from the Spirit, I'm sorry to say, but you are being just plain stupid. You say, well, Pastor Gene, that's a little harsh, isn't it? Well, no, it's not. Remember the Galatians? Paul wrote to them, they began well, uh, but then they had been influenced by other teachers who said that there are other things that need to be brought in, both for your salvation and for your growth in your salvation. And in chapter 3 of Galatians, Paul begins there in that section to speak to them, and he says, you foolish Galatians which means, you stupid Galatians. And in verse 3, he says it again, are you so foolish? Are you so dim-witted? The Amplified Bible translates it this way and, and expands on it as the Amplified Bible does. He says, it says, you poor, silly, thoughtless, unreflecting, senseless Galatians, trying to gather all of the nuances of meaning in the word, Foolish. And he says to them, he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He says. Knowing everything I've taught you, Paul says, are you so dim that you think you can do anything on your own? Do you think you can perfect yourself, that you can come to maturity on your own? He says, that is just stupid. That is just foolish. So know this up front, beloved, and never forget it. If you are ever going to be perfected and matured and equipped... It will have to be a work of the Holy Spirit of God. Now remember also that it is not an automatic work of the Spirit. We don't become holy. We don't become matured through osmosis. Just like it's been said, you don't become a Christian by sitting in church anymore that you become afford by sitting in a garage, it's also true that you don't become a mature Christian just by sitting in a church. It's not through osmosis. Again, that Philippians 2, 12 and 13, verse 12 says we are to work out. You are to work. We have to work. 
We have a part in our sanctification. Of course, we can only do it because he is first working in us. And if we try to do it without him working in us, it will never happen. And the Spirit himself uses means. He uses means to to bring us to maturity. He has bound himself generally to the use of certain middlemen, if you will, tools, um, means by which he perfects us and matures us. The first one, the primary one, of course, is the word of God. Paul wrote to Timothy, you all know this verse, that the scripture is inspired, it is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. That's the way God matures us. Remember Jesus also in in his high priestly prayer in John 17. said, Father, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. So the first means that God uses, the overarching means that God uses to sanctify us, to mature us, is his word. But he also uses other means. He uses trials very often. James said, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Trials is one of the means that God uses to mature us, to strengthen us, as is the connected suffering. Peter says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We know that through suffering, God strengthens us, matures us. Another one is discipline. The discipline of the Lord. Right? That's Hebrews 12. Where the writer of Hebrews talks talks about that, talks about it as an, an act, it is a display of the love of God when he disciplines you. Hebrews 12, 11 says, All discipline for the moment seems not joyful, but sorrowful. Yet for those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So the trials and the suffering of the discipline, those are not very pleasant but they are very good because they are used by a good God for our good. For those going through trials and suffering and perhaps discipline, one of the the greatest tools you have to get you through them is the promise of God that he is going to perfect you through them. He uses them to perfect you. And he does so not by taking you around them, right? But he stays with you through them. Well, there's one more means by which the Spirit perfects us. We could find others, but one more for this morning. And that is the church. 
that God has placed us in the church. He has made us a part of his body. And that in and of itself is a means that God uses as he surrounds us with other Christians, as he sets us under the preaching of his word, that primary means. This is the the means, this is the context in which the Spirit perfects us. And that's Paul's focus here in Ephesians 4, how God uses the church to mature us, to equip us for the works of service. And what's important, as we'll see as we go along, is that he uses all of us together for this task. But we're going to look this morning, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at at the provision, the division, and the vision of the work of ministry. This morning we're just going to look at the first one. God's provision for the work of ministry. We know that God provides for the body of Christ. He loves us, and so he provides for us. And he has provided, if we went back and looked at the beginning of the the book of Ephesians, that glorious first 11 verses uh, or so of the first chapter, we know that he has provided for us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. He has provided our election, our new birth, our faith, our repentance, our justification, our adoption, our sanctification, and our glorification to come. God provides everything for the salvation of all who believe in Christ. Including what we often call spiritual gifts. Enablings, skills, abilities given by the Spirit to all of us in the church to every single one of us in the church. No exceptions. No one misses that boat. No one is denied a gift. 1 Corinthians 12.11 says that the Spirit apportions to each one individually as he wills. And that they're given for the common good. What does that mean? They're given for the people sitting around you. We'll talk more about that in, in the other points here. But in verse 11, Paul brings forward a particular type of gift to the church, a particular emphasis. Here he speaks of of, of that different kind. Specifically, here he talks about gifted men. He has given gifted men to his church as gifts. In verse 11, he mentions them. It says, and he gave, that is Christ gave, that is Christ the ascended king of the church as a, as a result of his glorious victory he has given and he gave verse 11 the apostles, the prophets the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers the gifts in verse 11 that he gave it says, are not really gifts per se but they are people with special gifts with special callings that he gives to the church for the good of the church not apostleship but apostles not the gospel in this case but those who proclaim the gospel evangelists that's what Paul's talking about here and this is part of the provision that Christ makes for the ministry of the church and it's very important to the rest of the the passage here 
And it's important in general for us to get this right, to understand it right. Especially as we see here in verse 11 that these are things that that he gave. Again, the ascended victorious Christ, none other. He has personally given men with these specific gifts to the church. He's gifted them and then he gives them to the church. Well, a lot of giving. But that's very natural, isn't it? Because it is God's nature to give, isn't it? He's always giving. He gives us natural blessings, physical blessings. He gives us sun and rain and snow and day and night and seasons. He gives us food and water. He gives us strength. He gives us, well, he gives wisdom, Daniel 2.21 says, to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. All of that comes from God. But he also gives us those supernatural blessings that we have. He gives us his grace and his mercy. He gives us the spirit. He gives us salvation. He gives light to the eyes. He gives us guidance by his word. He gives us eternal life. He gives us, as we said, every spiritual blessing. He gives forgiveness of sin to those who will but come to him in faith. Because, most beautifully, most wonderfully, God so loved the world that he, what? He gave his son. He gives. God is a giving, giving God. And he has given these gifts to his church, apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds or pastors and teachers. They are gracious gifts of a loving God to his church, gifts by which he builds his church. Let's look at them briefly. The first gifted group are the apostles. That comes right from a a Greek word. You'd recognize it if you saw it. Apostolos are the apostles. And it means one who is sent out, an envoy, a delegate, a, a messenger. And in the New Testament, this word refers to different individuals, different groups, First, it's none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 3.1 says that he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Christ we can think of as the greatest apostle, the divine apostle. He was sent, sent by God himself, anointed by God himself from heaven itself to earth on behalf of God the Father to proclaim the message that he was sent to give. So that's one group. The second group is is a group of men who were sent out as messengers from the church to act as official representatives of the church. Think of of Barnabas. Um, Think of James, the Lord's brother. Um, That group is sent out uh, to other places in the church from the church to go and to, to give certain messages. The third group, and the, third, and the group that's really being referred to here, are those who are called apostles of Christ. And here the word apostle is being used in a, a technical way, a way to refer to those known as the twelve, and later to include the apostle Paul. These are listed here. They're listed first here because they were the, the most important in the New Testament, in the New Testament church. In 1 Corinthians 12.28, Paul writes that God has appointed in the church first apostles. That is first in in, in, um, importance. 
And they were a most exclusive group. I mean, it's interesting now that there are, are some, some very prominent in our own city, who say that there are still apostles today, that the leaders of their church are, are, are called apostles by others in their circles. But that's most certainly not the case because it was a very exclusive club. Most clubs have requirements, right, to get into the club. Um, and the apostolic club was no exception. And it has a quite stringent list of requirements. To be a part of that group, one had to, be, had to have participated in the earthly ministry of Jesus. That particularly uh, came out when they were getting ready to replace Judas at the beginning of the book of Acts. Second, they had to be a witness of the resurrection. And of course, that was one of the main tasks of the apostles, was that they were to be to, to the world witnesses of the resurrection from Jerusalem and spreading out. And so it was necessary that they had witnessed it. And even Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.1, in proving his, apostles, his apostleship, said, Have I not seen our Lord? And indeed, he had seen the, the risen Lord. Thirdly, they had to have been called by Jesus himself. Not just by the church, not by any group of men, but by Jesus. Jesus called many disciples. We read about the disciples. Sometimes we get confused between disciples and apostles. And sometimes the words are used interchangeably. Because all of the apostles were disciples, but not all the disciples were apostles. In Luke 6.13... Luke writes that when, the, when this day came, it says, He, that is Jesus, called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also named as apostles. And then, of course, we know that he later called his special apostle an apostle to the Gentiles. In Galatians 1.1, Paul introduces himself as an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. So those are the qualifications. And and just for those today who think that there are still apostles today or that they are an apostle today, there's simply no way that anyone today can present those qualifications. The apostles were great gifts from Christ to the church and important They spoke with authority. They spoke and wrote infallibly as they wrote Scripture. And the church recognized this when it came time to start recognizing which books belonged in the canon. And they recognized apostolicity as a primary requirement. A book to be included in the New Testament had to be either written by an apostle or directly traceable to one. And why was that? Well, because the church realized that they were the authorized spokesmen of God. That they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. They heard God's word. They spoke God's word. They wrote God's word without error and with the authority of God behind it. And as a result, from the very beginning of the church, early in the book of Acts, we read that the church was continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles who wrote the Bible, 
who founded and taught the churches that confronted and refuted error. That's the first group that Paul speaks of here in Ephesians 4.11. The second group are the prophets. Now these aren't the Old Testament prophets that you might think of, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and so forth. He's talking here about New Testament prophets. There were New Testament prophets. And it's interesting that, that as, as prominent as the prophets were in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, the apostles have taken over that primary role, and the prophets we really don't hear very much about. They were there. They're not the same as the apostles. They're a step down in the hierarchy from the apostles, though they were often associated with them. Their requirements, we don't read about their requirements, any special ones in the New Testament. They occasionally received, they spoke direct revelation from God, but not in the same quantity as the apostles. They did speak God's truth as he revealed it to them, and they spoke it in the context of the church. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about that. On other occasions, uh, they expounded existing apostolic teaching. But we don't hear a lot about them. Uh, Probably the best known of the prophets in the New Testament is Agabus. Agabus is mentioned twice. He he predicted a, a famine or prophesied a famine in Acts 11. And then later he met with Paul and his group in Acts 21. Remember, he did that odd prophet kind of thing where he took Paul's belt and he tied it around himself and said the same thing's going to happen to the owner of this belt. It's a very prophetic kind of thing. But that's, that's Agabus. The others that we read about are, are Judas, not Iscariot, uh, and Silas. But there's not much written about that. But the way it seemed to have worked is that the inerrant God-breathed teaching of the apostles were in the New Testament supplemented by the New Testament prophets who had the ability to speak those words and to proclaim them with clarity and with power. They were subordinate to the apostles, but the gift that they exercised, interestingly, the gift of prophecy, was called by Paul the greatest of the spiritual gifts. He said, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is, the one, is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues. So the prophets were another gracious, another necessary gift to the church, another foundational gift of the church. But of both of those, the, the apostles and the prophets, they are both temporary in nature. Uh, their importance and their scope of time was for a specific purpose and for a specific period of time, especially in regard to the apostles. They were foundational. They laid the foundation with Christ as the chief cornerstone. Paul then goes on and mentions a third group, and that is the evangelists. God gave, Christ gave evangelists. Now, what's an evangelist? Well, when I was growing up, in the little church that I grew up in, an evangelist was a, a special person that we would all look forward to coming, and he would come to our church for a week uh, once every year, and he would preach very fiery messages and, and get everybody uh, all fired up. can't remember exactly what we were fired up to do, but we were fired up. 
he would often come and put a chart across the back of the church and explain um, the prophecies in the Bible. So that was an evangelist when I was growing up. For many people, an evangelist is somebody who preaches on television. In fact, we call them often televangelists. Do it in a fancy suit. Very emotional, very pleading, often manipulative, often heretical. To others, an evangelist is someone like George Whitfield or Billy Graham, who have large ministries and spread the word. But an evangelist was simply someone who was especially gifted to proclaim the gospel, particularly in areas where it hadn't been proclaimed already. Interestingly, the word evangelist is only used three times in the whole of the New Testament. In Acts 21.8, it's used to describe Philip. In 2 Timothy 4.5, Paul encourages Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. And then the third place is right here in Ephesians 4.11, where they're listed as Christ's special provision to the church to equip the saints for work of ministry. Now, we might also add that though he is not called an evangelist, perhaps the greatest evangelist that the church has ever known was the Apostle Paul. Evangelists were not gifted with inerrancy or inspiration, but with a gift of proclamation. And these, were, these are especially those like, like Philip, who spread the gospel, who went and were preaching the gospel. The evangelists, both then and now, are also characterized by, by the fact that they go where the need is, typically. They go where the field is. Now, they don't, always, they don't usually get there the way Philip did. Remember in Acts 8.39, he just disappeared from here and showed up somewhere else. But they're very mobile. We have missionaries who, who go to new fields of opportunities at home and abroad and who introduce the gospel to new groups, to new souls. And we're commanded that God would raise up such men. And we should pray that God would raise up such men to go out into the harvest field. Those are the evangelists. The last group are what are called the pastors and teachers, or the shepherds and teachers. Depending on the, the version of the scripture that you're, you're reading, in fact, if you're reading from the ESV, it depends on which uh, edition of the ESV you're, you're reading because they made a change, you will either see the word pastor or shepherd. Now, they mean the same thing. A pastor is a shepherd, Shepherding is what the pastor does. A pastor is a shepherd. And just to be clear, the, other, the elders in a congregation are also shepherds. Shepherding those under their care, as Paul talked to the, the elders from Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. Now, a second thing, though, to note there, besides that difference between pastors and shepherds, is... is that for grammatical reasons, it's best to understand these last two gifted men, or categories of gifted men, pastors and teachers, as really speak, speaking about two functions of one office. 
That's why very often you'll hear the, word, the, the phrase pastor-teacher. Uh, it comes from here. There, there, there are grammatical reasons for that that I, I won't go into here. But the work of one category of men that Christ has gifted to a, his church. A pastor is a shepherd and a pastor is a teacher. That is his function. It is to teach and to guide. Or as some have said, to lead and to feed. And so I think here that he is, Paul is making a little distinction where, as I mentioned, shep- or, uh, elders are shepherds, but the elders are not the ones particularly um, generally that he is talking about here because he is focusing on that teaching aspect. The idea of a shepherd would have been immediately recognizable to the original readers. Uh, But I think even we who have been exposed to the concept of a shepherd see how pertinent the term is for the work of a pastor. A shepherd performs several tasks all centered around provision and protection. And that's what the pastor is concerned with. He feeds, he guides, he leads, he directs, he looks after the safety, he guards against enemies. He's a custodian, a guardian, an organizer, a protector of the flock. But I think Paul is, as I said, being specific here to talking about pastors who are engaged in teaching. Now, having looked at these four real, real briefly, and we're going to look at, at more, especially in that last category, let me pause and show you something that I think is helpful, and that is that this list that Paul gives in verse 11 is, shows a certain progression. First, there were the the, the apostles and the prophets. As I said, they are foundational or were foundational in the church. They provided that inerrant speaking and writing of God's word and the foundational exposition of that word for the purpose of laying the foundation for the New Testament church. Once that foundation is laid, it can't be laid again. It doesn't need to be laid again. It needs to be built on. Therefore, the foundational, I just mentioned this because of some of the things we have in this area. I want to emphasize that the foundational offices of apostles and prophets are no longer needed. They no longer exist. There are not prophets and apostles today. The apostolic teaching, the teaching of the apostles, is written down. It is codified for us in the Scripture. And since we have their teaching, we know its source, we know its authority, we know know the office and the the attending, authenticating gifts that these men had, they have all served their purpose of laying that foundation and are not needed today. And they do not exist today. Even if you look in in the pastoral epistles, the letters that Paul wrote to, to, to Timothy and to Titus, There's no mention of prophets or apostles uh, except in identifying Paul. So it's at least there strongly implied that since the office of pastor-teacher was being established and the New Testament scripture was, was, was being written and moving through the church that the prophets were becoming less and less um, necessary. What became important now and what continues on today is the expounding of the truths that the apostles laid for us in the scripture. And as you move through the New Testament, chronologically, 
you see a pretty clear transition from the work of the apostles and the prophets to the regular continuing offices of pastor and elder in the ruling and teaching of the church. And we see that as it moves out of the New Testament era and into the post, uh, post-apostolic era. Error. Era. So there's that foundational group, the apostles and the prophets. Then's the evangelists. Now, some say that this office was restricted to the foundational period of the church, like the apostles and the prophets. But but unlike the apostles and the prophets, whose very function was necessary only until the advent of the New Testament scriptures, the evangelist is of continuing need in the church. In fact, our own book of church order says in regard to evangelists, since the gifts and the function of evangelists are necessary until the end of the age, The ministry is permanent and not confined to the apostolic period. So there are evangelists today. And their work is to see converts brought into the church based on the gospel of Christ as explained by Paul and the other apostles. There are those who, as I said, are especially gifted to this and called to this area, zealous for, for personal evangelism and for formal uh, evangelism, willing and able to go to far-off fields and to proclaim God's word, and we thank God for them. And then we have the pastor-teacher, or the teaching pastor, or teaching shepherd, however you want to put those together. And the purpose of this gift is to provide now the ongoing, continual feeding and leading of the flock of God for the perfecting of the flock of God. The continuing work of the church through the teaching shepherd is is absolutely dependent on that proceeding, foundational work of the apostles and prophets. As Paul said to the, the Corinthians, those that come after are building on that foundation that's already been laid. And that's so necessary for pastors to remember that we're not up here can't be up here to make up things on our own. As, as I study God's word every week and work to put together sermons and as I stand up here every week and, and, and teach God's word, I am very conscious, and you should be too, that I am not simply giving you what I think. We'd all be in big trouble if that was all I did. Because outside of the pulpit, some of you have heard some of the things I think. Not theologically, But I am teaching you, I have to be teaching you, what God, through the apostles, are teaching me through the scriptures. That's what God has given for us today. We have the written word of God, we have the apostolic teaching, and we have pastors and teachers to give that to us. To help us to understand it. To help us to apply it. That's the post-New Testament way of equipping the saints. That's what God has given to us. These are the gifts, again, that the victorious, ascended Christ has given to the church because he loves the church, because his will is for us to be built up, for us to be perfected, for us to be mature Christians. Now, as we go forward over the next couple of weeks, we're going to focus on the last of these on the pastor-teacher. And we're going to focus on the function of that office in the church and here particularly at Reading Reform Fellowship and 
how that meshes with the function that you all have in the church. That we together all have as we as a congregation of the church of Christ seek to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. All as a working out of the gifts that Jesus Christ has earned and given as the exalted king of his church for the growth of his body. You and I. That he has redeemed and has called out of darkness into the kingdom, into his kingdom. So we're going to be looking at the division of the work of ministry next week. We'll look at what the pastor does, and we'll look at how that moves on in verse 12 as he equips the saints for the work of ministry. What does that mean? That's what we're going to see. But for now, let's give thanks to to God. Let's give thanks to Christ for the fact that he has given, not just the gifts that he gives to us, but for the fact that he has given the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers throughout the time of the New Testament church. Uh, He has given them to us for our good. And to that, let us say, amen. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for for the, the gifts that you give. And we thank you, Lord, that in your infinite wisdom that you have chosen to perfect your people through the work of the ministry and through the work of men that you have equipped and gifted and given to the church as gifts. We pray, Father, that you would help us to pray for our pastor, that he would be a man of the word, a man of your word, and that he would in all ways be faithful to teach us your word, that we may be equipped all to your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.